good evening and welcome again. We're glad you're back tonight. Got a good number here and we are grateful for that. Thank you for the reading tonight and for the singing. Appreciate Danton leading our singing tonight, the prayer that's been offered. We're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4 in our study tonight. We've been looking at key chapters in Scripture. Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul in writing to Timothy, his own son in the faith. And the title of our sermon, the title of our lesson tonight, Sound Words to Live By. Many of us, we appreciate sound wisdom, sound advice. Paul, writing by inspiration, is giving some very sound and sage advice to Timothy, his own son in the faith. And so we're going to be talking about that in just a moment or two. I do want to say how much we appreciate each of you here tonight, we're so grateful that you've chosen to come back. I know that we have been through a lot the last few weeks. We've had a lot of adversity here at Olive Branch, but we're getting people back, and for that we're grateful. For those who are much better health-wise, we are thankful to God for that. We pray that we can stay well and uh, hopefully and prayerfully uh, continue to meet and be together and watch our numbers continue to increase. And so we hope and pray for better days ahead. Tonight, as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're going to break this lesson down in two parts. The first, the danger that we read about in chapter 4 to those who are in Christ. Then secondly, we're going to talk about duties in Christ. Now, I said a minute ago that Paul is writing to Timothy. The time of Paul's writing would have been somewhere in the early 60s, maybe A.D. 61, 62. And Paul here is writing to Timothy and encouraging him to safeguard his faith. So first and foremost, to understand that Paul talks about the expectation of apostasy. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, that is, in the latter days, this dispensation in time that we now live in, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits or deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The problem of false teachers, false prophets, was not foreign to the Jewish people. Was it foreign to those who were disciples of Jesus? Matter of fact, you remember back in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus, in what is typically referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, said in verse 15 of chapter 7, Beware of false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but he said, Inwardly they are ravening wolves. Jesus there instructing people that would be his followers to safeguard their faith, to understand that one of the ways that we can identify those who teach or propagate error is by their fruits, that is, by the fruit of their doctrine. Now Paul here talks about those deceiving spirits. Well, that has reference to individual teachers. You remember in 1 John chapter 4, at verse 1, John said, Beloved, believe not every spirit or every teacher, but rather try or test the spirits or teachers. And the reason being because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul, we can go back and look, for example, in the book of Acts. And we can trace his missionary endeavors. You remember over in chapter 20, Paul is in Miletus. While in Miletus, he calls for the elders of the church from Ephesus to meet with him. 
So when they arrive, he begins rehearsing and reminding them of his labors among them. For three years, Paul labored among them, night and day, as he would say, with tears, warning everyone. Well, in verse 27, Paul would say that he had not shunned to declare to them the whole counsel of God. He preceded that statement by pointing out that he was free from the blood of all men. In other words, as a gospel preacher, as a teacher of God, he had discharged his duties as one who was speaking on behalf of Almighty God. He had done his very best to try to remain free from the blood of other people. In other words, he didn't want to stand at the judgment and somebody say, you know what, you didn't tell me what the Bible had to say. You didn't tell me what God said. So then in verse 28, you remember, he said that the elders were to take heed to themselves and to all the flock. He said, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to feed or shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now note if you would, Paul instructed those men to take heed to themselves and to the church and to make sure that the church was properly fed God's Word, that is, from Scripture. And then he said, from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things. Well, why? Well, he tells them to draw away the disciples after themselves. And so, Paul here, letting, the, letting these men know that apostasy was on the horizon. Matter of fact, there would be an apostasy that would arise from among the eldership. That's what Paul's saying there. So when Paul wrote to Timothy in the early 60s, Paul in chapter 1 verse 3 says to Timothy, he left him in Ephesus for the very reason of charging some that they teach no other doctrine. So there was this probability and possibility of apostasy. And Paul's going to identify some of the earmarks of this apostasy. Back in chapter 1, you remember Paul talked about Hymenaeus and Alexander who made shipwreck of their faith. In chapter 2, in 2 Timothy, Paul, writing some six years later, talked about Hymenaeus and Philetus. He said, men who concerning the truth have erred. That is, they've gone astray. And he said, they're teaching that the resurrection has already passed. And then listen to this. And overthrow the faith of some. That's the danger of false doctrine. That's why the Apostle Paul here is saying you need to be on guard. The first line of, of defense in false doctrine is a knowledge of truth, and we'll talk about that in just a moment or two. So there is the expectation. Peter, for example, in 2 Peter chapter 2, talked about how there had been false prophets among the people. He said, even so, there will be false teachers among you. False teachers... False prophets, Judaizing teachers, preyed upon the early church. And so the Apostle Paul, time and again, had to battle those individuals. So, note with me if you would, in the second place, the earmarks of this apostasy. Now Paul here identifies a couple of earmarks of this impending apostasy. You remember, for example, back in Acts chapter 14, the Bible tells us that they appointed or ordained elders in every church. God's design for the church, well, the universal church, one head and one body. That'd be Jesus is the head and then the one body, which is the church as we know it. But then from a local vantage point, you have elders, plural, 
deacons, members, etc. Well, one of the problems that, uh, that emerged out of this apostasy was individuals, rather than serving as elders in a plurality, you had one man who functioned as a bishop over a group of churches. Well, that wasn't biblical. Matter of fact, in Titus chapter 1, Paul told Titus that he had left him on the island of Crete to set in order things that were lacking, and then he said, and to ordain elders in every city. Or in other words, in every city where there is a congregation of God's people. You need elders, and they have to meet certain qualifications. So one of the identifying marks of the apostasy, it's not spelled out in chapter 4, but one of the early departures was in church government. So listen to what he says in verse 3. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So here are two earmarks of this apostasy. Number one, they would forbid to marry. Number two, they would command to abstain from certain meats or from meats, which Paul said God created to be received with thanksgiving by them which believe and know the truth. Were there certain dietary regulations imposed upon the Hebrew people? Well, the answer would, to that would be yes. There were clean and unclean meats, were there not? But after Jesus died on Calvary, all of those tenets of the old law were nailed to the cross. That's what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2. As a matter of fact, turn with me very quickly and look at Colossians chapter 2 and listen to what the Apostle Paul said concerning those who were trying to impose certain elements of Judaism on the New Testament church. In Colossians chapter 2, note if you would in verse 16, Therefore let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a feast day or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. Drop down, look at verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? And I think about those aesthetic practices that were being imposed upon New Testament Christians. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion or in will worship, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So, two identifying marks of the apostasy. One would be forbidding people to marry. Another would be forbidding to eat meats. Well, did that come into vogue years later? Of course it did. Matter of fact, you can go back and look, historically speaking, some would say by the 4th century, those very tenets were being imposed upon quote-unquote followers of Christ. So, here's the question. Where'd that come from? 
Didn't come from the Scriptures, did it? You know, there are a lot of things that people practice and propagate, religiously speaking. But there's no foundation for them in the Bible. And so, there are a lot of things that people practice that when put to the test, there's no merit to it. When you go back and look at the early church, the early church had its beginning in the first century, Pentecost Day. And then there was a departure, a full-blown departure. You had the introduction of the instrument in, musicals, in worship services. You had the creation of the papacy, which grew out of, as I said a minute ago, departures from the government of the church. And then you have the adoration of Mary and praying for people in quote-unquote purgatory and all of these other religious practices that are not rooted in Scripture. Years ago, I had the opportunity to be on a television program, and we were talking about what the Bible has to say. And I remember we were talking about the Bible in light of what people practiced in the Catholic Church. And that's not intended to disparage anyone in, in the Catholic Church. But people need to know what the Bible teaches, and they need to know what the truth is. And so, we talked about 1 Timothy chapter 4, and some of the earmarks of apostasy. I never will forget this lady, a young lady, came to me outside the church building one day, and she said that she had, she had seen the television program, and based upon what she heard us read, she was concerned. She had converted to Catholicism through marriage. So we gave her a copy of the lesson, and she began investigating. Matter of fact, she said that she called the priest of St. Assisi in Cordova. And she asked him, please explain 1 Timothy chapter 4 to me. What does it mean when Paul said that an apostasy is going to occur and there are going to be some who forbid to marry and command to abstain from meats? And you know what she said? She said, he couldn't answer it to my satisfaction. Now what does that tell you? I'll tell you what it says to me. He had no biblical foundation upon which to stand. And so as a result of that, he couldn't answer the question. And sadly, she had converted to Catholicism, and when her husband found out that she was investigating what the Bible had to say, you know what, she, you know what he said? You're questioning the teaching of the church. Listen, the church has no authority. There is not a church on earth that has any biblical authority. The authority is in Scripture. The church can be wrong. There are churches of Christ that have erred from truth. Matter of fact, they ought to take the sign down. If you're not going to practice the tenets of New Testament Christianity, you don't deserve to wear the sign. But nonetheless, I simply say that to point out that Paul here is warning Timothy about impending departures from the faith. Now you remember in the 
Well, 1400s or so. Certain individuals, Martin Luther was one, who rose up and began what was called a Reformation movement. Their intent was to reform the Catholic Church. Well, what they should have done, rather than trying to reform, was to restore. That's what they really needed to do. Rather than going back to the Catholic Church, they needed to go back to the first century and try to restore New Testament Christianity. So, several hundred years later, you had a movement that took place in America. There were other people in other lands that were following New Testament Christianity. But you had individuals who arose and said, you know what, we need to get beyond the doctrines and commandments of men and simply go back and do things in Bible ways and call Bible things by Bible names. Peter said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So, let me give you an illustration. If you were to, if you were to start looking around for an old car, say a 1968 Mustang, let's just say that you found one in an old barn and you brought it out and you said, you know what, I'm going to restore this car. Well, you could either restore it or you could refurbish it. If you're going to restore it, then that means you're going to put it back in its original state. What some people do is they restore it, but they modify it. That's not what we're talking about in terms of the church. We don't want to modify anything. What we want to do is restore the church as revealed in Scripture. Does that make sense? That's the goal. So with that in mind, I want you to think secondly. First, their danger, the danger in Christ. And there was a danger. But then note if you would, Paul sets forth his duties in Christ. And I would say that we all have these duties, these obligations. Number one, Paul said that Timothy was to be an instructor in Christ. Now, there are two thoughts here. Number one, he was to be an educator of the truth, but in order to educate others in the truth, he needed to be educated himself, didn't he? So he would be an educator of the truth, but he needed to be educated in the truth. So with that in mind, look at verse 6. Paul said, if you instruct the brethren in these things, that is, with regard to this impending, this impending apostasy or departure from the faith. He said, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. When we talk about sound doctrine, really what we're saying is it is doctrine that is healthy. There's a difference between sound doctrine and false doctrine. False doctrine will kill you spiritually. Sound doctrine will nourish your soul. Paul said here to Timothy that he had been nourished in the words of faith. You can go all the way back to Timothy's childhood. And Timothy was nourished on what? On God's Word, wasn't he? You remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3 when he said that from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures? 
which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So here is Timothy as a young fella. He's got a godly mother, a godly grandmother. They're teaching and instructing him in the principles of faith. They're pointing him in the direction of God. Paul comes along and Paul teaches him the gospel. He becomes a child of God. And so Paul said, You've been nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have, listen to this, which you have carefully followed. How careful are you when it comes to following the truth? It's amazing to me how we are meticulous in some areas in life, aren't we? If I choose a medical doctor, I want to make sure that doctor is meticulous in how he goes about his business, don't you? If you were going to have heart surgery this week, would you not want a competent physician? Somebody that is meticulous in his work or in her work? Someone who's not going to cut corners? You know, you think about, for example, in the business world. There are individuals who have the responsibility of taking care of the finances. There are corporations, large corporations, and we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. And they very meticulously record trans transactions of business on a daily basis, don't they? Very careful. Why is it in the business world, in the medical, in the medical field, we're concerned about precision and being meticulous, but then when it comes to religion, we say, well, you know, it really doesn't matter. I mean, haven't you heard people say that? I mean, there, there's no real concern about, doc I mean, doctrine, that's not a big deal. It's not what Paul said. Paul's talking about the faith once for all delivered. There's just one faith, that's what Paul said in Ephesians 4. And Jude said that we're to contend earnestly for the faith. And so Paul here talking about the danger to saints of God. And so, he said, I want you to remind the brethren of these things, instruct them in these things. Drop down if you would, look at verse 11. These things teach and command. So, he's got to be educated in divine truth, and then he is to be an educator of the truth of Almighty God. I said a minute ago, you can't teach what you don't know, can you? Now, you know, in the first century, there were apostolic gifts. And the apostles had the ability to confer spiritual gifts on certain individuals. And you can go back and read Acts chapter 8. One of those would have been miraculous knowledge. They didn't have the New Testament as we do today. And so the gospel was in men. That earthen vessel was in men. Well, today it's in the book. But Listen, if you would, to what Paul said in verse 9. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. For the, To this end, we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. God is the Savior of all people, isn't He? And God wants us to make this message known far and wide. People are lost and dying in sin. The remedy for sin is the blood of Jesus. The ark in which people are saved is the church. So when we preach and teach the gospel and individuals submit to the teaching of Almighty God, 
and they obey the gospel, they become members of the body of Christ, and God is the Savior of those people, isn't He? He's the Savior of all men, but especially those who believe. Think about what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews chapter 5. Though He were a son, yet learned He obedience by the things which He suffered. And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation, listen to Him, unto all them that do what? That obey Him. There is a premium placed on obeying the truth of Almighty God. So, Paul is telling Timothy, you have the responsibility of preaching and teaching and grounding people in the truth of Almighty God. Drop down, note if you would, verse, look at verse 13. Paul said, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, or to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy. I mentioned a moment ago about spiritual gifts. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, he said, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul, are you saying then that doctrine is important? Sure. Paul said, listen, you've got to exercise caution in what you practice and what you preach. With that in mind, I want to share a second thing with you very quickly. First, he was to be an instructor of the truth. Secondly, he was to be an imitator of the truth. Now, there are two ways that we can teach. One is verbally, the other is visibly. So listen to what Paul says. Pick up with me, pick up with me if you would, in verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In other words, Timothy, I want you to be an example to other people of what it means to be a New Testament Christian. You carry yourself like a child of God. Let people see Christ living in you by your speech and by how you carry yourself among others. Note again what he says. In word, in conduct, in love. Love is that undergirding principle that Jesus talked about in John chapter 13, how people would know that we're his disciples if we have love one for another, the badge of discipleship. In spirit, this has to do with our attitude. A person might know the truth, believe the truth, strive to practice the truth, but they have a rotten attitude. And so, Paul here is saying you've got to have the right attitude. In faith, you be an example of what it means to be a Christian. Your faith, that is, that rock-solid faith that you have developed over time. Remember, the disciples said to Jesus on one occasion, Lord, increase our faith. Our goal is to increase our faith, isn't it? Well, how do we do that? The way that we increase our faith is by spending time in God's Word. Now back up with me if you would and look at what Paul said. In verse 8, bodily exercise profits a little. Millions of dollars are spent every year in this country. People wanting to look better, feel better, Nothing wrong with that. 
A lot to be said for exercise. A lot to be said for trying to take care of our temple. But what Paul is saying is, the emphasis in life is not necessarily the outward man, but rather it ought to be on the inward man. Let me give you an example of that. Remember over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the disciples about the dangers that they would face preaching and teaching the gospel, how they would be hated by all and how they would be scourged and suffer immeasurably. And then he said, down in about verse 28, that we're not to fear those who can kill the body. Don't you find that odd? Where is the emphasis in the church and out of the church? It's on the body, isn't it? In many, in many cases. I mean, people are all about self-preservation. And listen, I get it. I want to live just like you want to live. But Jesus said the emphasis doesn't need to be on the outward man, but you need to fear the one who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell, that is in Gehenna. The Lord's saying what's really important, not so much the outward man, this tabernacle, this tent of flesh, but rather what's important is your eternal soul. And so in light of that, bodily exercise profits a little, yes, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. I said a minute ago, Timothy was to be an instructor of truth. He was to be educated in the truth. He was to be an educator in the truth. One of the real liabilities in the church today is our lack of knowledge. When I talk to people in other places about the church and where we are as a brotherhood, you know, one of the reoccurring themes is our lack of knowledge. There's a real deficit in terms of what we know regarding truth. How'd that happen? How is it that we, in many respects, do not even know the fundamentals of the faith? If you want to be open prey for the devil, then just close your Bible. The greatest ally the devil has in and out of the church is a closed Bible. Did you know that? And there are a lot of folks, they are sold a bill of goods, religiously speaking, and the reason is because they don't know what the truth teaches. It's sad to say that there are some congregations that have been led astray from the faith by men standing in the pulpit propagating error and elders sat by and said nothing. Members who ought to know better sat by and said nothing. I heard a preacher say not long ago, and he said this from the pulpit, and he said it with pride. He said, we haven't had a lesson preached on instrumental music from this pulpit in 30 years. That's nothing to be proud of. That is an indictment on the eldership and those who served as preachers over that period of time. And we wonder why the church is drifting. We wonder why the church is not as strong as it once was. It's because we don't know the book. That's it. 
And let me tell you what, the only way we're going to know the book is to roll up our sleeves and start studying. There are no shortcuts to learning the truth. It takes time and effort, doesn't it? I'm thankful to those of you who spend time every day reading and studying and meditating on the truth of God, who are trying to grow in your knowledge of God's Word. And there's a correlation between your faith and the strength or lack thereof of your faith and God's Word. When Peter said, grow in grace and knowledge, the only way to grow in knowledge is to spend time in this book, to exercise, spiritual exercise. When you go to the gym, whether you're getting on a treadmill, whether you run outside, whether you're lifting weights, whatever you're doing, if you're going to make progress, then it's going to require a lot of effort, isn't it? You want to see a difference in how you look? Then you've got to pay the price, don't you? You want to see a difference in your knowledge? You've got to pay the price. You've got to spend time in this book. You've got to be like the psalmist of old who meditated on the truth of God day and night. So, he was to be an imitator of the truth. And I said, we can do that verbally and visibly. And so, the record says Timothy was to be a preacher and a teacher, that he was to share the gospel with others. But visibly, that is, he was to show the world what it meant to be a New Testament Christian. I want you to see something very quickly before we close. I know our time's gone, but look over in 1 Peter chapter 3. I want to read this with you because I want you to see the power of Christian example. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter here is talking about a Christian woman who is married to a non-Christian. He said, Likewise, you wives, verse 1, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, listen to this, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Not a word said. But Peter said, you can win your mate to Christ. How? Look at verse 2. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, do not let your beauty be that outward adorning of arranging the hair, of wearing gold, or of putting on fine apparel. Not saying there's anything wrong with braiding your hair and wearing gold and trying to look nice. Not saying anything like that at all. But what he is saying is the emphasis is not on the outward man, it ought to be on the inward man. And here's how you win your mate to Christ. They observe your conduct. Look at verse 4. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. I think Peter there is simply saying, look, you don't have to beat your mate over the head with a Bible and drag them into the church building. You just strive day in and day out to live the Christian life. Can you teach them verbally? Yes. But there are times when they're not willing to listen. They don't want to hear what you have to say. So what do you do? You just conduct yourself like a Christian, like what Paul said, let no one despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Let me tell you what, there have been a lot of people over time, who have been won to Christ 
by faithful mates. Happens. Don't give up. You just keep living the way you know the Lord wants you to live. Listen, that's sound words right there. You want to make a difference in the world in which you live? Live the Christian life. Be an example. Be salt and light. That's what we're talking about. Tonight, you might be here, you're not a Christian. If you haven't obeyed the gospel, could we encourage you to do what they did on Pentecost Day, where it all began, city of Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago. Peter and the other apostles, they preached the gospel. That gospel found fertile soil. And the Bible says that those people being convicted of sin wanted to know what they needed to do, and Peter said you need to repent, number one, be baptized, number two. That repentance and baptism preceded by faith in the Lord. When they did that, they enjoyed the remission of sins, Acts 2.38. God put them in the church, Acts 2.47. And the exhortation is, be faithful. You live a faithful life day in, day out, no matter what, and guess what? That crown of life is yours. You don't have to worry about that. If you're here tonight and you're not a faithful child of God, maybe you've gone away, back into the world, you're not living as you should, you want to be restored. Could we pray with you and for you tonight? God will abundantly pardon We'd be happy to pray with you tonight as we stand and sing.